Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 22 in just a few moments. It is so good to see you this morning. And we're glad that we get to worship together as a church family on this Mother's Day. I mean, we are, if you're a mom in the room, we want you to know how grateful we are for you. We also know this, that for many of us, it's a difficult day. And just know that you're loved and that you're prayed for and that you're cared for. And if there's anything that we can do to serve as, as pastors for you, please let us know. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, we are picking up where we left off last week. Jesus was in the boat at the end of our time together last week. The disciples looked down. They said, we've only got one loaf of bread. And as we pointed out last week, if there is anything that the disciples should not be concerned with in regard to this Jesus, it is bread. They have plenty of bread at all times. And as they are in the boat, we begin to see the story taking a turn because the entirety of the gospel has been moving has been moving us to consider who Jesus is, to think about the things that Jesus happens to do and how Jesus functions and you have this assembly of various things that Christ done has done that point to the idea that he is the Messiah, he is the savior of the world, but no one seems to be realizing it. They just got the little pieces spread Everywhere, with four children at my house, many of you feel that number. Some of you guys think that number is nothing. But with four children at my house, I have spent the better portion of the last 12 years going to birthday parties. Just what we do. We, we go to birthday parties. Gentlemen, if you want to celebrate your wife, I know you thought it was cool to get her sunflowers today. Just load the kids up and tell her to stay home. I think that will celebrate her greatly when these birthday parties come up. But we go to birthday parties a lot. And birthday parties, they just get bigger and bigger. And people give you bigger gifts. And why did I get a championship belt at a seven-year-old's birthday party? What type of takeaway is that? You're looking at the birthday party. They always let you know what you're going to be doing. They advertise certain things. We're going to have a bounce house. In the bounce house, there's going to be a monkey in said bounce house. It's going to be the best time. But for you as a parent, when you are being forced to go to a birthday party, the, the one thing that you are promised that is better than anything else that you could be promised is there is more than likely going to be the provision of a meal. And you have just re- replaced that meal for your children with you don't have to do it. You don't have to drive through Chick-fil-A. You don't have to bake a casserole. You don't have to make a peanut butter sandwich for Alder one more time. It is all going to be there. And they let you know that there will be pizza, there will be cake, there will be ice cream, and there will be that monkey. And you're beginning to think through this birthday party, pizza, cake, ice cream, that's the promise. I'll get through the heat of living in Lake Jackson and being outside in a bounce house that is about 194 degrees approximately. And we'll get inside. We'll eat the pizza. When you walk inside, you notice that these parents have taken this thing on a turn because when you look on their counter, rather than having pizza from Domino's, Pizza from Papa John's, they have the ingredients to make pizza. Rather than having a cake like the good Lord intended, they have the ingredients to make cake. Rather than having ice cream, they have the ingredients to make ice cream. And complete side note if you are that parent, 
Do not do that to yourself or anyone else. It's punishment. But you look around and you notice all of these items. And you see that they're not together. When we look through Mark's gospel, we have been given the the whole scale picture of who this Messiah is. Jesus has just been foreshadowing what he's going to do over and over and over. Jesus has shown us that he is God's great supply, that he is God's provision for us. Jesus has shown us who he is in this text as he meets in Mark chapter 8, earlier our last session together, and he meets the Gentiles and he calls them to himself. Jesus has been foreshadowing who he is and we have this spread out notion of the what makes up a Messiah when we get to Mark 8 where we were last week the disciples are in the boat with this Jesus in verse 18 they are confused as to why they as to the fact that they had this very small amount of bread and Jesus asks them in verse 18 are you blind. Have you really just missed it? Have you missed what I've been moving us toward? It reads in verse 18, Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? The unique thing about Mark's gospel is it's usually setting us up for the next thing. And when we see Jesus use the phrase about blindness in this passage, it takes us directly to where we are today. I'm going to read verses 22 through 9 verse 1. And then we're going to work through this text together. Mark chapter 8 verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him. And they begged Jesus to touch him. Well, he took the blind man by the hand and he brought him out of the village. Spitting on his hand and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, well, I see people. They look like walking trees. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then Jesus sent the man home and said, Don't even go to the village. 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Well, they answered him, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say that you're Elijah, and still others, they say you're one of the prophets. But Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary... For the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke about this openly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and and looking at his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concern, but, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself. 
take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, you'll save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And then he said to them, Truly I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God in heaven. 22. They come to Bethsaida. The word means the the village of the fishermen. Now remember, in verse 18 of of our previous sermon, we see that he has said to the disciples, Are you just blind? It is intentional that the writer of the gospel of Mark, named Mark, is going to say to us in the very next story that Jesus heals a blind man. But he heals a blind man in a way that is unique to every other healing in the entirety of the New Testament. Because when Jesus heals him, he, he touches him. When Jesus heals this man, he has to do a couple of things. There are two steps here. They brought the blind man. They begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, brought him out to the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he said, Do you see anything? It's so strange that Jesus would spit. That Jesus would would touch this man's eyes. That Jesus, in his attempt to heal this man, in his approach to healing this man, would do it differently than he has done in the entirety of any other stories that we see. Jesus touches the man's eyes. He placed his hands on the man's eyes. And the man looked intently. And his sight was restored. He saw trees, the Bible says. The people around me look like trees. Sproul points out when he talks about this text that it gives us the idea that there's a possibility that this man at some point in his life has been able to see or he would not know what a tree looked like. Regardless, when he points this out to us, it lets us know that things are not quite right when the man just sees what seem to be trees moving around. In November, I went to the movie theater. I like the movies. I like popcorn. I like Coke Zero. I, I like M&M's. I like to sit in the theater. I like the theatrical experience. I like everything about it except the ginormous amount of money they charge you. I'm sitting and I'm waiting to see a movie. And when the screen opens up, you can see things, but it's entirely green. Everything is in shadows. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. There has to be more. I go have a hard conversation with this 17-year-old at the front desk that she did not receive very well. I'm looking and there's something that is supposed to be there. Can I really see what's there? When you see Jesus in this passage healing this man, we are seeing a build from what we've been reading. And we are seeing a picture as to what the disciples are seeing. We are experiencing through this man what those who have been interacting with Jesus up to this point are experiencing. They are seeing shadows of the Messiah. They are seeing that there's something that's there, but the reality of the Messiah has not quite fully been realized. Here in this text, Jesus touches this man twice, letting him know that... This, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm right here in your midst. And I think that we can be encouraged by this. 
But, but the way that Jesus seems to approach this man, a, a gentleness, a care for this man, that gives us a picture of what the way that Jesus gently cares for us. The patience that Jesus has. The hope that Jesus portrays. But Jesus heals the man and tells him, don't go into the village. Don't tell anybody what's happened. Why is it in the world? Because we see that twice in our text today. Into situations and saying to people, don't tell anybody. The moment that this man who has been blind tells them that Jesus has healed him, Jesus is overwhelmed by people wanting him to work miracles and everything has to become about what he can do and not who he happens to be. And I think if we're not careful for us, we can lean into the idea that our faith is about what we think Jesus can do and not who he actually is. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Deliverer. And yes, there are things that we want to see Jesus do in this life, in this world. For us, as followers of Jesus, we cannot rid ourselves of the eternal things that Jesus is doing. Of the eternal hope that Jesus offers. We meet needs, as we discussed last week, for the sake of seeing spiritual, eternal needs met. Jesus comes to the other side. It says in verse 27, He went out with His disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is on the outskirts, and there are numerous ways that people are attempting to meet with deified things there. You have the polytheistic Romans who live in Caesarea Philippi. We know that they are polytheistic based on their history. More than likely, they are just people who are caught in carnal religion that they're not really attached to. They have the idea of the, of the god Pan there, but on top of that, there is Caesar. The city is named after Caesar. Philip found it, and if you knew what was good for you when you found the city, you named it after Caesar. Philip's the person who, who landed there. When they get there, Jesus looks out upon Caesarea Philippi and says to all of his disciples, as he considers the landscape of the city... Who do these people say that I am? What a big Bible question that we have. What do they say about me? On top of the Romans, you have the Jewish people who make up the town. Some of them we alluded to and we've spent some time with throughout these four chapters or throughout these eight chapters. The Herodians, those who believe that King Herod is the real way to the Messiah. The Pharisees who believe that if we were to rid ourselves of the drunkards and the sinners, that we'll see the Messiah come. There are other groups as well. There are the Essenes. The Essenes believe that if for the Messiah to come, we must go to the outskirts of town and have these unique ritualistic baptisms in, in the sand there's another group called the, the Zealots. that They would violently overthrow Rome through force. Jesus looks at his disciples and considering the landscape of this area, asks this question of him as he looks at Caesarea Philippi, what are these people? What do they think when they think of me? What do these people who are apart from me think of me? This is a question for us that we can get a little bit caught up in at times. We can think through what the world in which we live thinks about Jesus. What are their concerns with Jesus? What are their impressions of Jesus? And when those things, their concerns and their impressions are not what our concerns and our impressions believe they should be, we grow angry and we grow frustrated. 
I cannot believe they don't think what I think. I can't believe they don't act how I act. I can't believe that they don't see Jesus the way that I do. And we live in this frustration, this continual frustration. Jesus asked this question of his disciples about people who are far from him. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. That's amazing. Because the legend of John the Baptist is growing and growing, and even though he's already dead at this point... The people in Caesarea Philippi don't know that he's dead. And if there's any attachment to John the Baptist, this man may be a legend. Some think that you're Elijah. Elijah, the Old Testament promise of the one who would return to the people of Israel. and some, Or maybe just one of the prophets. John the Baptist, Elijah, these other prophets, the fearless men of God who spoke out against evil and injustice in that world with a consideration of the next. And they brought hope to God's people who were puzzled and suffering and going through hardship. And all of these things are good. They're just veiled. They're shadows covering people causing us to think that they're trees all of the ideas that we find in the prophets are pointing us to Jesus but they are not him but you who do you say that I am The contrast of these two ideas is stark. Jesus says to the disciples, what do they think about me? And then he asks the more important question. These men who have attached their lives and livelihoods to him, what are you saying about me? What are your thoughts about me? Because they keep being confused by him. Peter answers him, You are the Messiah. You're God's promised deliverer. Mark stops us there. I don't want us to to do that. When you read this passage in Matthew chapter 16, we get more detail. Two books in the Bible that mention Caesarea Philippi, Matthew and Mark. And he says this phrase in Matthew. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies to that because he affirms it. Jesus says to him in Matthew 16, I'm, you, On this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. I'm building this church and what it will be on this very truth that I am the hope of the world. That I am the deliverer of the world. And the gates of hell, they don't stand a chance. Those words are weird. That the gates of hell don't stand a chance. It almost reminds us of what we see in Matthew 11 where we see the kingdom is forcefully advancing. When it comes to Jesus, hell is not only offensive. Jesus is. 
Gates are for defense and protection. And Jesus says, what I am doing is undoing that. But the uniqueness of this text, as we consider Jesus and his disciples, and what may be swelling up inside their souls as they hear him finally say that he's going to undo the world that they live in. He says the gates of hell don't stand a chance. How is he going to destroy the gates of hell? The offense of Jesus is sacrificial death. He charges at hell with his sacrificial death on the cross. That's how hell is undone. We can't present Jesus without cross and sacrifice. And if what we are presenting is a Jesus who is void of cross and void of sacrifice, what we are presenting is not Jesus no matter how much we attach it to Christian things. The way that Jesus undoes the world is through sacrificial death. And here's where the gospel turns in this story. This is where we go from shadow to reality. And the disciples are with it. They are ready to charge. They're taking those heavy fish and doing bicep curls. And the very next words out of the mouth of Jesus... Is him saying to them in verse 31, the gates of hell don't stand a chance. Trouble's coming. I thought we were there. Let's be completely transparent. We are not different than the disciples in this passage. When we get to the moment of victory, There are dopamines that release inside of us. We think it's time to go. To receive what comes across as defeat is deflating. He began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and rise after three days. spoke openly about this. The contrast there is super unique to me because he's been telling everybody, don't tell everybody, don't tell everybody, don't tell everybody. And right here, he says, yeah, they're coming for me. And then Peter does. Peter just, he just hit a home run. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. That's a message that God has shown us that. He, and then Peter does what Peter does, and Peter does what we do. Fresh off of a home run, Simon Peter strikes out. Jesus' number one guy is speaking to him in a way that is unacceptable. 
Jesus, let's talk. Now, you had everybody ready to charge hell. And Rome, we would also like to charge Rome, but hell, you talked about hell. We're going to overthrow Rome and hell. Don't forget Rome, because I don't like Caesar. Taxes are rough. But Jesus, the whole way that you said that we're going to do that is through you dying. That's a terrible plan. And that is a terrible plan if it's my plan or your plan. I'm very pro-living. But turning around, verse 33, and looking at his disciples. So him and Peter are over here to the side because Peter pulled him to the side to correct him. They're over here. Jesus just turned around, leaves Peter, and says, Get behind me, Satan. I don't know if that's a term of endearment at your house. In high school, I, I took Spanish. Uh, my first Spanish teacher's name was, was Miss Kidd. My second Spanish teacher's name was, was Beatrice Ingram, one of my favorite teachers ever. She was from Colombia, and she taught us Spanish. And I can remember opening the textbook, and, and in the textbook, there were pictures of animals. Now, I understand that... The Spanish language is different than the English language, but there were pictures of animals, and all the animals were making... They did not seem to be the noises that animals make. And, and a dog barks, and pigs oink, and, and chickens cock-a-doodle-doo. But on the page, this is what it said. It, this was the page, very similar. Kikiriki. I've never heard a chicken say that. I've never heard a rooster say that. I've, I've never come across any of that. So I told her that it wasn't true. I didn't believe that. I said, that's not what chickens say. That's not, how they, that's not their language. We had an exchange student come in, and we were allowed to ask questions of this nice exchange student. And my first question when we were given the opportunity to interact with her was, hey, can you tell me what a rooster says? And Mrs. Ingram was very frustrated with me, and she started to call me El Diablito. Now, if you are a Spanish speaker, you may know that means little devil. And for the rest of my high school life, this lady called me little devil. I may be a devil. I have never been little. <laughs> Ever. When Jesus says this to Peter, he is not saying anything affectionate. He's saying nothing to him that is kind. He is letting Peter know if your belief about me does not need me to die. That is the way of Satan. Hearers and overhearers are present. And Jesus has addressed to the disciples, that's not my way. I'm discouraged at times by the way that every angle of people who claiming to know Jesus seem to be approaching the message of Jesus. If Jesus calls us to the idea of His sacrifice as our hope, I don't think that we can live apart from that. He says to the disciples, if you want to be part of what I'm doing, it's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve the denial of your rights and your privileges. It's going to involve the denial of your desires. 34. 
calling the crowd along with his disciples, the hearers and the overhearers. He said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, big word, follow. They believe that he's going to overthrow Rome and in so doing, overthrow hell. Establishing Israel as the hope of the world. Fulfilling the prophecies of Israel. If anyone is going to follow after me, that person must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The word choice of Jesus here is very important. And I don't want... Because Jesus said it, duh. But it's very important for us to consider as followers of Jesus in 2022 as much as it was then. For us, when we consider a cross, and I've heard this shared with our bridge kids on Wednesday night, that we think of cross as jewelry. We think of a cross as a then thing. The disciples, as they heard Jesus, had no connection to the cross in that way. Neither did the overhearers of the passage of the story. Their idea of cross was completely tied not to the fact that Jesus would be executed, but that Rome executed people who rebelled against them. And the way that Rome would establish their dominion and their power and their rule and their reign and the way that they would cause you to get in line with what they were doing and how they were doing that was to take men as they crucified them and parade them through the streets carrying a cross. Take up your cross. When Jesus says this, this is the thought that they have in mind. You carry your cross. And when you carry your cross, what you are saying to everyone who sees that cross is that you were a rebel against Rome. But that you have been confronted about your rebellion. And in that confrontation... You have realized that you do not have more power than Rome. And now you are surrendered to Rome. When Jesus speaks of the cross here in regard to you and me, when he says you should deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, he is reminding us on the front side of what he will do that if you are going to align your life with the way of the Messiah with the way of Jesus, then you have to realize the rebellion in your heart and you are going to carry a cross that says, that which at one time I had rebelled against, I'm surrendered to Him now. How unique are our expressions of Christian faith? Are we making daily choices? Because honestly, Luke goes that far. He doesn't say you take up your cross on Sundays or Tuesdays or whatever preferable day you may have. Take it up every day 
and say that your heart is God, but now you're surrendered to him. One commentator asked this question, do you think that belonging to the kingdom of God would only mean that you made a few small tweaks to your normal everyday life? And then you would return to your regularly scheduled program? If we are going to be Christians, we are going to follow Jesus in the direction of sacrifice. Because we're united with Him in that. Following Jesus, denying ourselves, is what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means. So for us, as a family of faith who gets to come together every Sunday here and celebrate the goodness of Jesus here... I would encourage you and I would encourage me to deny myself, to take up my cross and follow Him. Because evidently, according to Brother Luke, we need to be reminded of that every day. Because I really like me and you really like you. But you and me don't get to be king and queen. If you're really going to be part of my kingdom, the one that overthrows hell, that undoes it, you undo it through sacrifice. Living the way of our Messiah. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we see present here. Lord, I thank you for the conviction that we find in this passage. Lord, I thank you that you would simultaneously... Lay the heavy weight of the cross on us and tell us that your burden is light. Father, for our people, I pray that we would be people who are taking up our cross every day in light of what you've taught us. Make much of yourself, Jesus. Declare yourself as we deny ourselves. Friends and family, if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, I want you to know there is no hope outside of Him. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. His crucifixion and His resurrection are the place where we can know hope in this life and the eternal life that God promises us. If you've never trusted in Him, Jesus, I want to trust you is a really good way to start that conversation. So Jesus, you take my sin. You take my sin. And you deal with it. And I'll take the life that you offer. And then you're invited to take up your cross every day. You were invited to live out sacrifice because of His. Father, we thank you so much for this people. As we sing, move in our midst.